Good morning, great men and women of God. It's good to see you here, and I know also seeing our friends that are gathered over at Third Space Coffee, as well as in living rooms and some small groups that have even met together this morning, so we welcome you here with us. Um, we're going to be in mainly two passages of Scripture today, Psalm 24 and Jeremiah 29, but we're just going to... Uh, be a moment in Psalm 24, and then we're going to really drive towards Jeremiah 29. So I encourage all of you to, to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your device so that you can be ready when we hit it. Indian author Arundhati Roy writes this, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks, and our dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. What if this pandemic is a portal? It's a way into a, a new reality that we've dreamed of if only we have the courage to step into it. And what if this season of national unrest is a pathway to a new listening and reconciliation? And isn't it core to our faith to be people who imagine a new world with Jesus and then get ready to serve and fight alongside him for it? These last four weeks, we're taking uh, moments just to talk about what are the scriptures that have been shaping us. I am very grateful today to share a scripture that continues to mold my mind and tune my thoughts as I am looking at our world in new and new ways. So let me explain. I've always believed in a theology of people. God loves us. We've sinned and broken a relationship with us. Jesus died and rose again to restore that relationship, and everyone needs to believe in that to be forgiven. Now, that's a good theology of persons, of people. Yet, it's only page one of the gospel. And when the gospel is limited to page one, we can, just, we can begin to think that the purpose of our life is just to get people into heaven. But when we start to look past page one, we see that we're also living to get heaven into people and into places. What I'm talking about this morning is a gospel that has a theology of people and a theology of place. For example, over the last few years, Pulpit Rock Church has looked out into our city and we have seen foster care kids that don't have a bed to sleep in. When they don't have a bed, they don't get to stay in the foster home. And they're in heartbreaking situations of abuse and asbestos and hunger and homelessness. And we ask this question. Is it enough to only care about the eternal souls of these kids and not their daily circumstances? And our answer was what? No. And that's why over the last few years we've built 327 beds for kids in this city to sleep in. Because taking seriously the great commission of Jesus Christ to teach all that he commanded means that we teach all of it. That means not just the teachings about people, but the teachings about neighborhoods and communities and cities. In other words, and here's just my main point today, one of the reasons Jesus changes people is so that Jesus' people can change places. 
One of the reasons that Jesus changes people is so that Jesus' people can change places. As Dr. Martin Luther King said it much better than I just did, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. It is all too easy, now listen to this part, it's all too easy to have a theology of people that assumes that the only cure for the problems in America are changed hearts through Jesus Christ. Now while a theology of people does lead us to believe that every heart needs change that only Christ can bring, a theology place also leads us to say we want to bring change to our land. This is why, years ago, when there was a system of racism in our country called Jim Crow that included segregation and lynching, we didn't just sit around and wait for Jesus to change the hearts of people. People marched for change. They fought for change, many losing their lives. And we saw the Civil Rights Act signed into law. Yes, we need hearts to change, but the systems and the laws and lands need to change as well. Dr. King went on to say something very powerful. He said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important. I think the power of that statement is rooted in the fact that Dr. King knew that people's hearts had to change, but he also knew that places had to change, because he knew the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1 that says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, command of God. In fact, I believe that we Christians are the only people who can truly discuss the salvations of souls and the rebuilding of city sewer systems in the same sentence. We are the only people who can talk about that because God has given us a theology of people and a theology of place. Because Jesus changes people so that Jesus' people can change places. Now, the scripture that, that about 10 years ago began to really shape my heart towards this is found in Psalm 24, and it's found in the opening line of David's words. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's. The earth. I just get caught there because David is saying, God is not just the father of people. He's the founder of place. The earth is the Lord's. Now, what are the implications of that if it's really true? Could we say Colorado Springs is the Lord's? Could we say Austin Bluffs Parkway is the Lord's? Could we say Panorama Middle School is the Lord's? Could we say that the southeast part of our city and the northeast part of our city are the Lord's? And if we begin believing that these places belong to the Lord, then what do we do with them? So I started going back through the Bible and, and, and seeing how did people treat the place, how did the people of God treat the places in which they were? And this build, book is filled with everyday people like you and me who are striving to live out as if the earth was the Lord's. When we look through the pages of the history, we see prophets that were ministering and serving people that were physically sick. We see godly people who would give counsel to kings and city leaders and say, this is the way you should go. We see people who would confront leaders who were leading unethically. 
We see communities that created cities of refuge where refugees would be welcome to find food and shelter and safety. We, we, we see people who said, I will sacrifice my money and I will put it in a storehouse so those that don't have will be able to come and make use of it. We see people who fought and created systems to forgive debts so that people would not be trapped forever and ever in generational poverty. God's people confronted street gangs. 2 Kings chapter 2, look it up. They served in jury duty. They constructed these amazing temples and, and buildings in cities. They looked at cities that had fallen and they said, let's rebuild. They saw rubble and they said, let's reclaim. They saw urban decay and they said, let's renew. And whenever unbelievers would question them, why are you doing these things? What is motivating you to do these things? Our ancestors, our fathers and mothers in the faith would give a public defense of the work of God. That's why. And they did all this because they didn't have just a theology of people, but a theology of place. The earth is the Lord's, and they, and now I contend we, are entrusted with his land, his cities, his neighborhoods, his communities. And as I was looking at all those different examples, there was one example in particular that has really set a course for me to believe and understand a theology of place. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now in Jeremiah 29, there is a verse that many, many people know. In fact, for some of you, it may be like your life verse, your favorite verse. It was my brother's favorite verse, and he had this rock with it written on it on his desk. And I've, I've taken it, and I have it on my desk now to this day. Here's this verse. See if it sounds familiar to you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 11. How many of you have heard those words before? Okay. How many of you believe these words are true? How many of you would hope that these words could be true for you personally? I'm right there with you. We use this verse all the time. It's one of the most popular verses in the Bible. It's one that we hope for and go, yes, I pray this. I want this to be true for me. But did you know that there is actually a condition placed on this promise? Before this, there is a condition that had to be met. Let me give you the context and the story behind that. City of Jerusalem, back here in Jeremiah, had been sacked three times in ten years by the Babylonians. They were a horrible, brutal, evil group of people. They swarmed into the city doing unspeakable acts and in stealing people away to enslave them. And they took thousands of people back to the city of Babylon to serve there. It was an attempt not just to destroy a city, but to wipe out a culture of people. It was cultural and ethnic suppression on a grand scale. Now, you, you may know how like in World War II uh, prison camps, they, they would still maintain some kind of order in the military. And so, so you might have leaders that were higher up in the military, and they kind of were still, even though they were prisoners, they were leading the, the group there. Well, there was something similar functioning here. The elders of the city of Jerusalem that had been taken away were still kind of functioning as the leaders de facto of this group of thousands of refugees and POWs. And the exiled people of God kept coming to these elders with questions. Questions like, how are we supposed to live here? 
where do we worship with, with our freedoms and, uh, taken away? How are we going to handle this pressure to constantly bow down to false gods? How are we going to protect our children from all this rampant immorality around us? And most of all, when are we going to go home? As you think about America in 2020, some of those questions might be in your heart too. What would God say to us? And so what Jeremiah did in chapter 29, he gives us a copy of a letter that God prompted him as a prophet to write to these elders in captivity. Now in it, he gives them God's command for their captivity. Now here's the bad news. The first bad news is what they can't do is leave. They're going to have to shelter in place in this foreign city for at least 70 years. But then Jeremiah shares the good news. Here's what you can do in the next 70 years. Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry. Have sons. Have daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now remember, when I was first like understanding these words, they were confusing to me. I, could, I, I would have thought God might have said, okay guys, it's going to be 70 years, so just hunker down and hold on. Wait it out, and in 70 years, your children's children will be free. I could even understand God saying, oh, okay, guys, build walls around yourselves. Plant gardens so just, to, just for you. Make sure you have your own schools. Make sure you have your own gathering places. Grab all the toilet paper you can. Insulate yourself from this city. Don't let it infect you. You've got to make it through unscathed so we can continue on. Instead, he commands the believers to do all they can to help the city of Babylon thrive. And only after we hear this command do we arrive at the promise of verse 11. So my understanding is this. God's plans to prosper and not to harm, to give people a hope and a future, are not just a general promise that these people could claim because it sounded good, but these plans of God to prosper were a result of their obedience to seek the prosperity of the city in which that they have been placed. Now, I'm a person that believes that when, when God writes something in the Bible, like he was writing that just to those people at that time, but I think these words also serve as a template for us as well as we talk about seeing the prosperity of our city. But then what's really weird is this. He says it twice. He says it in verse 4, and he says it in verse 7. I don't know if you saw this. He says, seek the prosperity of a city to which I have carried you in exile. Those had to be hard words to read in this letter from the prophet because I thought it was the Babylonians who carried them into exile. God is making it sound like he has a purpose for his people to be in Babylon, almost as if God sent them there. And this is what's great. The Babylonians think this is our city, but all of God's people there are going, no, the earth belongs to the Lord. Many Christians in America today probably feel similar to these exiles. We, we feel like we're living in, in just hard times for people of faith. 
The culture is getting more and more immoral. Our faith seems more and more under fire. Up seems down, and wrong seems right. We don't have the freedoms we felt like we once had, and we feel like exiled people, and exiled people just want to go How can we hunker down and hold on and pray for Jesus to come back so we can finally escape? I want to reframe that for you. Because we are not exiles waiting to go home to a kingdom. We are exiles sent to bring the kingdom to our city. We are not just waiting for, uh, to go home someday and find a kingdom. We've been given the kingdom, and God says, I want you to bring it to your city, our city. Colorado Springs, Colorado. To seek the peace and prosperity of this place. And if we're going to have a theology of place, then we need to start looking at Colorado Springs the way that God looks at Colorado Springs. We need to ask, what evil should die? What good should thrive? Because the church of Jesus is in Colorado Springs. So we need a theology of place. And more than that, I'm calling us to be theologians of place. This is where you use your Bible as a lens to look through the city and the community and the neighborhoods and the streets and the school districts and the parts of the city you love to go and eat out and the parts of the city that you never want to drive through. How do we do that? Well, there's probably many tools. I just wanted to share one idea with you, us today. That theologians of place look at their city with Jesus and with each other. We sit with Jesus in his word and we look at the place around us and we go, where does this city not look like this? And then we do this with others. We partner together for the good of this place. Let me give you an example of sometimes what it doesn't look like. A friend of mine used to work at the Springs Rescue Mission downtown, and he had a window that looked out over the parking lot where all these uh, homeless people were passing the day there. And he said it was a frequent occurrence. He said it had to happen at least once a month where a church van would pull up and the doors would open. People would pour out with burritos and blankets and sandwiches and sleeping bags. And he knew these people's hearts and intentions were good, but sometimes helping hurts. And he watched as they would give sleeping bags to people that already had one. Or they would give sandwiches to someone minutes before the Springs Rescue Mission was going to serve the, the nutritious lunch of that day. Or they didn't bring enough burritos, and people got angry. So he said, you know, these people are good-hearted. Let me go out and enlist them. So he would go out to them, introduce himself, and say, thank you so much for your heart to serve. Did you know that we're just about to serve lunch? We really could use you. Would you want to come in and serve with us? And he said, almost without exception, the people said, no, this is, this is what we felt like God wanted us to do today. And they climbed back into their vans and they drove off until the next month or the next year, whenever that kind of thing came around again. The point is this, that theologians of place, we don't do drive-by charity. We think about what is the best way to help and we collaborate with those who know how to do it. This is why one of my favorite things about Pulpit Rock is whenever God has stirred our hearts towards an issue, the very first thing we ask is this, who's already doing this that we can partner with? We don't feel the need to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to have our own version of whatever that ministry looks like and put our name out. We just ask the question, who's already doing this? The last few years, we, we looked at our world with Jesus, and we looked through his word, and God gave us a heart for, for victims of sex trafficking. We said, that does not look like this word. 
But we didn't start a sex trafficking rescue ministry because God was already doing that through the Exodus Road. So we came to them and we said, how can we collaborate? How can we pray? How can we give? How can we go with you? We've been looking for ways, uh, as a church, there's been this growing need of the foster care community. And we look at, at, at how powerful this is and yet how many ways, sometimes the, the deck seems stacked against them. And so instead of starting something, we found Care Portal, which was already meeting the tangible needs of hurting children and families in our city in a major way. And we collaborated with them. I wanted to just kind of share this. Last uh, weekend was our third year of partnership with them. And in partnership with them, this church alone has served over 1,244 children. And the economic impact of that from this church into this city is over $400,000. That's amazing, and that's collaboration. I love this, too. Two weeks ago, El Paso County reported in the Gazette that for the first time in five years, the homeless community in our city has actually decreased. It's gone down by 29%. I really believe that this is due to some cooperative efforts of our businesses, of our civic arena, of our law enforcement, and the church Churches in the city just like this one that were a part of leading efforts to, to raise funds for, for expansions to uh, the, the Springs Rescue Mission and some other projects like that. I love that. I love seeing that the needle is moving in some things. One more. Uh, we, we, during the COVID crisis, this church said, well, what, what, what can we do? Like, what are we supposed to do? We saw the southeast part of our city. Southeast part of our city was hit much harder in many ways and for some economic reasons than in most of our city, and a number of families in the southeast were suddenly faced without access to adequate meals for their families because the, the schools where the kids would get uh, a breakfast and lunch and then a snack on the way home were now shut down, and where was all this going to come from? And so some churches got together, and they said, what can we do? We can bring cleaning supplies, laundry supplies, paper goods, baby items, formula, food. And our church, along with some others, collaborated to organize a drive to drop off essentials to people to create this food pantry that was really being run and set up by the teachers and principals from District 2. Do you see how amazing that is when you have, you have school, businesses, faith, civic community all coming together saying, we may not agree on everything, but we can agree on what's the common good is that our kids are getting fed. Let's do it together. That's the prosperity of the city. I just want you to know, because of time, I had to cut so many other stories, but I just, I, I want you to remind, be remembering this. One of the reasons Jesus changes people is so Jesus' people can change places. And having a theology of places, much more than just having a deep passion for people, it's about really connecting your soul with some sod. And you begin to look at your city, not just as this is where I live, but this is my city. And I think that sense of ownership comes out of that command of God in Jeremiah that we see as a template for us. That we could be a part of changing people's lives and changing places because of Jesus Christ. One last thought. During these uncertain times, when it seems like walls and words and, and just stuff are being thrown around so quickly, I believe we are in this city for such a time as this. To light candles rather than curse the darkness to be a part of God's redemption of the land as his kingdom continues to advance.
Jonathan and I have a good friend, Reggie, who always asks us questions that we wish he wouldn't ask us because we don't know the answers to them. One time Reggie told a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church, he said, you know, when God went to bed last night, I very much doubt what he was thinking about was the number of people who were in your church on Sunday or how much money came into the offering on church Sunday. But I bet what kept him awake were things like this. How many people went to bed hungry? How many suffering people have no one to comfort them? How many children are alone on the street? Who will act on behalf of the children who are victims of sex trafficking? Why did 30,000 people die today of preventable waterborne diseases? And then he said this. When a church's scorecard is more like God's scorecard, well, that's when change has begun. What we are going through right now in 2020 is giving us a chance to imagine a new world, to write a new scorecard. More than ever, the scorecard of Pulpit Rock is moving towards the scorecard of God, and our gospel is cemented in a theology of people and a theology of place because we believe the earth is the Lord's. Now, I'm going to do something I haven't done in 25 years of preaching. I usually, and was trained, to always give you an application so you could go and do something. I'm not going to do that today. My only closing is to say to you this, Pulpit Rock Church, on behalf of the Lord, on behalf of the city of Colorado Springs and El Paso County, thank you. Thank you for being a, a people who have built houses and settled down. Thank you for planting gardens. Thank you for getting married and having sons and daughters. Thank you for continuing to serve our city for the COVID, during the COVID crisis. Thanks for putting on a mask. Thanks for longing for and working for and praying for racial justice and reconciliation. Thank you for walking through the tension that says, you know, there's not just this side and this side. There's, there's something together as humans we need to be moving towards with God. Thank you for being willing to share your faith in a Christ that changes hearts. Thank you for being willing to sit at tables who may behave differently than you, who may look differently than you, who may live differently than you, and just listen. And most of all, thank you for seeking the peace and prosperity of the city of Colorado Springs to which God has carried you. Jesus changes people so that Jesus' people can change places. This is the good path. This is the gospel path. Keep walking it. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe you are not done with this planet. We know your word teaches us that you are returning one day to right every wrong and take care of every evil and restore this brand new heaven and new earth. And at the same time, we march with you towards a new world that you are asking us to bring the kingdom one life, one plot of land at a time. May you continue to open opportunities for this church to serve not just this city, but our county, our state, our nation, and around the world.